0: I'm Julian G. Simmons. This is talking about our generation. Welcome back, everyone. And for those of you who are new to our podcast, welcome to the conversation. If you've been following this podcast, you know that we've been talking about Woodstock 1969 and the profound effect it had on our generation. Today, we are thrilled to bring you the man behind that historic event, the godfather of Woodstock, Michael Lang. Michael was just 23 years old when he had the vision of a three day concert in nature with the best music on the planet. Against huge odds, he brought more than a half a million of us together, peacefully, nonviolently, in the countryside of upstate New York. Woodstock changed the dynamic of American society and set in motion a positive movement that dramatically affected our generation. That all started with Michael Lang. Few people have had that much influence on so many at such a young age. And Michael's message of peace, caring, community, and cooperation through music remains extremely relevant today, right now. Here's my conversation with Michael. Welcome to Talking About Our Generation, Michael. It's really great to have you on this podcast. So thank you for being here. Sure. My pleasure. We have been doing interviews with people who worked in and around uh, Woodstock, the Woodstock Festival, since last year, around the 50th anniversary, all people that you know. And Mm -hmm. having you here is, like, amazing. It's just really (laughs) quite a wonderful thing. So, Michael, where are you right now? I can see a house or something behind you.
1: Uh, I'm at home just outside of the town of Woodstock in beautiful countryside.
0: Wow. And you've, been, you've lived there for, like, ever Forever. now. Ever, yes, it's <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> it's like before, pre-Woodstock, you were yeah, living there. Yeah. Did you stay there the whole time? What do you mean? Did I Have I lived here all that? You time? know, I, I mean, for, since you first went there yes. to live there, which was before Woodstock. Right.
1: Yeah, I've always had a place um, here. I've I've had a place in the city also, and I'm back and forth, but I've always had a place
0: here. Cool. I'm going to try and talk about some things that are, are not the typical Woodstock questions, at least I hope not. And, but I do want to give our listeners a little bit of a background about you because you're kind of this mythological figure. Right? You know, <laughs> people have seen you in the movies. You, you were a man of few words even back then. Yes. And so we want people to get to know you a little bit. Now, I know that you're originally from Brooklyn, New York you your dad was in construction you went to NYU for psychology and business which is an interesting <laughs> pairing. combination yeah yeah exactly but i just i want to start right actually from home you know going back to when you were still at home in brooklyn and your dad was in construction it wasn't like you were in involved in the music business already and then you went to florida where you opened up a head shop i guess you must have been pretty young when you did that
1: yeah i was uh in my i guess my third year at nyu and just realized that it was not happening for me the world was too exciting so i made a serious life decision or career decision and went to coconut grove to open a head shop
0: (laughs) so how did that lead to music for you well i was always you know attached
1: musically to the world you know as a kid i mean just you know growing up in the in the 50s in america you were into rock and roll right so music was just always a part of my life and i was a drummer when i was a kid in a band so so it was it was you know always something that that i included in whatever i was doing and when i opened the shop in the grove i started producing kind of free concerts in the local parks and and bringing local group, local bands through, you know, bands were happening and things like that. And, and so we did lots of those kinds of things. And then in 1968, my friend Rico, Barry, and myself were sitting around talking about Monterey Pop. And I uh, thought, wouldn't that be cool to do in Miami? So that led to the Miami Pop Festival.
0: Do you, do you think, you know, I was just thinking about the, some of the people that you had at the miami pop festival like for example jimi hendrix yeah do you think it was because of the time that it was easy for you for example to like reach out to these people and get them to come and play because i can't even uh, imagine something like that like somebody who's like in their early 20s or whatever you were then Reaching out to a fairly well-known band and saying, "Hey, would you come and play <laughs> at this festival?" Do you know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's probably because I didn't know any better, but but you know, I went, I flew to New York and and met a guy named Hector Morales who worked for William Morris, and we became friends quickly, and and he really helped me put
0: together the, the billing.
1: You know, it, it just it didn't occur to me that you couldn't, <laughs> so.
0: Uh, yeah, well, which is like a a youthful thing, you know. It's yeah. we 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 just do these things and don't yeah. think too much about yeah. whether or not it's going to, like we do now. We get all neurotic about stuff. Yeah, I don't know. It seems uh, to still be happening to me, frankly. So, <laughs> <laughs> so well, that's great. And I'm sure, like the fact that what you were learning, it, the things that you chose to study at NYU when you were there, you already had this. Aptitude for that kind of like business, the psychology of business, first of all, because it's a lot of it is psychology, yeah. especially being successful at it. But you really dare to dream big. And I don't think most young people, even today, do that. But you really, it's like when I've talked to Henry Diltz, for example, mm-hmm. or Carol Green, they talk about this shining star being above you. And how things just came together with you, and that you always kept your cool. I mean, how did you do that? Uh, and what do you think about that shining star?
1: <laughs> well, if they saw it, I'm glad it was there. <laughs> you know, I don't. I, I I tend to deal with stress well. I don't really internalize it. Pretty much, the weirder things get, the calmer I get, and it's just it's just how I'm made. I, I don't know where it comes from, but but it serves it's it's definitely served me well and i think the people around me to a degree
0: and it's probably good not to question it yeah, too much right. either exactly. <laughs> just let it be yeah. but i i had read this quote i think it was on woodstockstory.com and it was something that you had said about i guess you had been going to the sound outs in yeah. uh, woodstock and you said I just thought about how nice it was for someone to be sitting out under the stars in the summer, smoking a joint and listening to music. I thought I wonder if something like this but bigger could work here. So was that 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 seemed like you were already thinking that way when you were in Miami, like I wonder if I could do take these small little things I'm doing in the park and make it the Miami Pop Festival. So you were already thinking along those lines, correct?
1: know as i said in terms of the miami pop it wasn't really something that grew out of those shows i was doing in the park it really grew out of seeing monterey pop i mean that really was what what sort of turned a switch in my head um Mm -hmm. you know that 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 was the kind of thing that that really appealed to me you know something on a bigger scale and and of the growing counterculture
0: so when you were laying out in that field in woodstock and thinking about doing an event, did you even think big enough that maybe it would be a half million people? Or were you no. thinking, it'd be great to do 50,000 people here?
1: It, it was, first of all, it was a small field and that quote
0: was <laughs> not, not very accurate, but, right. but um, you know,
1: it, it just sort of kind of evolved my thinking about, you know, Miami Pop was, in a, was at a racetrack pretty, but it was a racetrack and and just sitting, you know, out in that field in the middle of nature. And I just realized that that was really the right atmosphere for something like a large gathering to come together in, in a peaceful way.
0: So was it part of your thinking that I know by that time you had also met uh, Artie Kornfeld and that's when things started to gel, right? Because yeah. you both were kind of on the same wavelength, from the same neighborhood, too, I think. You are, yes. (laughs) Eight blocks apart. (laughs) Right, well, that's pretty close. (laughs) You know, it's interesting that back then, we we did have this faith in ourselves. We kind of were this generation where there was this empowerment that came about from being physically together as well, like things like Woodstock, Mm -hmm. that is, to me, it, you have kids so you may have a very different take on it but it seems to me that that is completely absent from the youth today i mean uh, other than going and demonstrating for black lives matter it's a little bit different today and you know, i think there's this big me thing you know it's more the me generation than the we generation now right. but i remember from when i was younger that i had this This yearning to be with people who were like me. And that, you know, and I was from Buffalo, and Buffalo was very working class outside of the university, where almost everybody came from New York to study there. But otherwise, it was a very working class town. Yeah and i was one of the people i was only 15 then but i got in a car with a friend and we went to go to woodstock we never got there because we couldn't we were stuck on the freeway and we're miles and miles and miles away i mean way too far to walk so we ended up turning around but there was this constant yearning in me to be with people like me and even though there was a half a million people at woodstock we were a minority how we thought
1: we were a minority but we were Part of a counterculture that doesn't exist. It was a time when young people felt empowered by the times. Um, we believed we could bring real change. Um, we were all united by the Vietnam War, which hung over everybody's head. You know, you could go to the mailbox on any any day, and there you were. You were fighting a war you didn't believe in. So there were lots of things that brought the youth culture together then. And like Black Lives Matter now, which I think people are stepping up to and young people are stepping up to, it was a cause that everybody could relate to. We had many of those coming out of the civil rights movement and, and human rights movements and women's rights and sexual freedoms and and drug mm-hmm. experimentation. We were all kind of linked together by, by a lot of, of countercultural aspects of, of our lives. Um, And so I think that that was a very special time. It's really what made me believe that something like Woodstock could happen, Um, that you could bring together this counterculture who were embracing a more peaceful world and and, a more compassionate way to relate to each other and and to share things together. And and so so we were kind of halfway there already. And I think that's what, what... really gave birth to what happened that weekend was the fact that we were of a like mind and here was a a place where nothing was in the way
0: of that where it was just up to us so that zeitgeist of the generation was did you feel like you were just tapping into it, or did you feel that you were doing something that was actually steering it?
1: No, I was in it. I mean, you know, I I didn't know that I would be steering it so much as just being a part of it, and yeah. and I guess I was trying to steer it back to uh, a place we were losing, which was a lot of a lot of the politics by nineteen sixty eight were were turning violent. A lot of the, the political groups in the counterculture were, you know were engaging in violence because things weren't happening fast enough and it just seemed to me like the peace and love kind of uh, thing that we had gone through in, the, in 66 and 67 was was turning sour uh-huh. and so for me this was a chance to say okay let's hold, hold it here and it's something that we can accomplish at least on our own if we can't accomplish it in, a, in, the, in the world at large And and uh, it was kind of an experiment.
0: So, uh, well, I have two questions based on that. One is the baby boomer. So many of us we came out of this very structured kind of upbringing and community life. You know, where they were more religious, and you know, you sat down, you had meals with your family. Uh, Dad wasn't around much, you know, because he was working all the time. And there was this very, very tight structure of, around sexuality, and and certainly they weren't doing drugs, or unless mom was doing Valium, and that, was, <laughs> that wasn't <laughs> talked about, yeah. you know? Um, so, I had just read this article, which you probably saw yourself, that Wade Davis wrote, which was in the Rolling Stone recently, about the unraveling of America. Mm-hmm. And he talks about the downfall of the American community, and... When I read that, I was thinking, well, does that mean we're responsible for the downfall because we took culture in such a different direction? But on the other hand, what we were striving for in that movement was community, but it was just a different kind of community. Yeah. I mean, it was a
1: community that that sort of existed all over the country. You know, it was... was not physically connected, generally, but but um, through intent and, and and values, it was connected. I think that you know I think politics has really driven big wedges between uh, people, and I think it happened over time and kind of in a reactionary way. And that I think that's what was so significant about the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah, um, and seeing that murder on television and that and bringing that. Reality really back from rhetoric to life. I think we had a lot of those kinds of references then that were also real and in our face and, and part of life. And so I think that's kind of how you how you uh, um, how you create change.
0: So do you think there's a a place still for you know, this article basically said that it's hopeless. <laughs> that the situation is <laughs> hopeless, and we've lost our place in the world. And I, I personally don't care so much about if we've lost our place in the world as much as I care about that we're taking care of each other. And
1: yeah, but but you know something—it's—it's—it's it's, it's no longer the same kind of world. I mean, I think that the biggest threat facing the human race is global warming. That's not something you you can. Stop at a border. That's everybody, and I think that people will have to realize that and come together over that problem. Hopefully, not too late, but but and it's getting late. Yeah, it's getting very late. <laughs> it's getting very late. Yeah, but I think that that people who will start to realize that we are you know still all connected, but there is no me you know and you. It's us uh, in every sense of the word. Without somebody so divisive in the White House as, as Trump has been to, to just dismantle everything that was positive about America um, I think that that's our hope and I think that and I think it's a real hope and I think it's a real possibility I'm, I'm kind of an optimist anyway um, but but I, I I'm not giving up
0: well it's I think that's great that you're saying that and I think that's going to give hope to a lot of people like us um, that we shouldn't give up and I was actually hoping you would say that. but I want, I want to like play Devil's Advocate here just a little bit. and that is you know after Woodstock, um, you were asked to help organize Altamont. Yeah, and Altamont was a very different experience and and you uh, you were there, obviously, so you know, uh, then what Woodstock was. It was kind of like the antithesis of it, or at least it appears that way.
1: I know, and people try to bookend it with Woodstock as being the end of the 60s, and, you know, I wasn't asked to help organize. I was ha- asked to help come out and move it because three days before they had lost a site, I guess I was known for moving sites. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so... But, you know, for me, it was, what Alphamut was, was just a good idea gone wrong without preparation. It could have been just a great day of music in California. But because they got the Hells Angels to come and, and, and be the security. And you take the angels who are, you know, live for their bikes um, and tell them you're going to have all the beer and acid you want. And you know, right. just come and right. protect the stage. And you put them put their bikes in front of the stage between the crowd and the stage. And the crowd is pushing, and they're going to defend their bikes. It was just, you know, it was it was stupidity, and and so I think it was just for me, not bringing the end of, of of an era, but or foretelling maybe an end of an era. But but it was just a badly planned event, not even planned, and was a missed opportunity.
0: On the other side of it, Woodstock was so many people, and yet no violence. Do you think that? was just a fluke or do you think it was because of who we were i think it was or something else i mean i think it was a lot to do with
1: the way we talked about it and the way we planned it you know you can't control what happens to a million people or a half a million people or a hundred thousand people really you can't dictate how they're going to feel and how they're going to react and you act can and- you can create a space though for something positive to happen and so when we planned Woodstock it was planned as an event that everybody could come to you if you didn't have money there was going to be a free kitchen and a free um, campground and free music uh, if you had the seven bucks a day or the eighteen dollars for the three days you got to of sit in front of the, the main stage um, course all that went out the window but that was part of the planning we brought in the hog farm to help people who were not used to really living out in the country at all these were mostly inner-city kids right Uh, how to set up a campground how to set up this campsite and then encourage them to help the next group so we started this sort of community uh, sensibility right from the beginning and people started coming two weeks before the festival I mean, it was you know on on the Monday before the festival I think we had 30 or 40,000 people in the field Um, and and, you know the way we handled security um, you know I can't tell you how many security guys I interviewed before finding Wes Pomeroy and you know there were things like we're going to put two rows of fencing up and attack dogs in the middle oh my god (laughs) (laughs) and like Bill Graham's famous famous comment about you dig a big ditch you fill it with oil and you light it on fire Uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, there was so much of that kind of thinking and then I found Wes Pomeroy who was, who was one of the the best known enforcement people in the country who worked under, you know, the federal government for things, who was the only kind of intelligent voice in Chicago during the Democratic Convention. Um, and he understood what our philosophy was of, of you just we created a peace force. We got off-duty New York City cops and, and interviewed them and the questions were like, what would you do if somebody blows pot in your face? And if they said inhale, they were hired. If they said beat them over the head, they weren't hired. Right. <laughs> so it was, it was really lining up all of the elements that we could control to create a space for something positive to have. And And given that, people responded to it with, I felt, what their natural instinct was, which was to be, you know, part of a family and 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 lose all that fear and all that paranoia of each other and and come together and that was the hope and thank god it turned out that way but think about it think 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 about it if we had had the hell's angels lining the stage with their bikes at woodstock and 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 you know no other security anywhere to be found and 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 no preparations for food or for medical or for anything else i mean it wouldn't have ended so pretty it would have been ugly is what it wouldn't have taken place yeah. you know in, in it would have it would have been ugly and and so it's it that was always my prime objective which was to create the space without any of the, the kind of right. downsides of what right. of what people have to do in their daily lives
0: plus the best music in the world yeah absolutely um but from what i understand people i've talked to including john morris uh, bill graham was at that point at least he was not a fan of big festivals was he well there weren't
1: many big festivals then so he but he wasn't a fan of woodstock and the funny story in my book uh, john morris came into my office ran into my office one day and said bill's going to pull the show and i said what and he said bill graham's gonna pull the show he's gonna buy out you know our acts and and i said he can't do that we have contracts and we have you know distance clauses and everything else um and i couldn't understand why and i told asked john to set up a meeting and and which he did and bill and i met um at a restaurant called ratner's which was a jewish dairy restaurant next to the Shulmore East. And uh, we sat down, and I understood finally what his problem was, which was we had booked his whole springs season at the film. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> well, that, yeah, that's a good and reason. He, and he said, "Who's
1: going to pay four bucks <laughs> to see that? See somebody at my place when they for seven bucks they can see everybody." <laughs> so, so I, you know, that was a relief, and I, I, said, "Well, you know, we won't advertise the acts until after they played your
0: but he actually came to woodstock well band. he not
1: only came he sent me uh, a tape of carlos santana and and the santana band which was a local san francisco band at the time um, i had loved Latin music and i knew tito puente had taught me actually to play kungas when i was a kid
2: wow and
1: and, and i was thrilled with the music and, and and so that was if nothing else that was the best buy of the weekend
0: <laughs> we did a great interview with michael Shrieve, which i hope i love michael uh, i love michael he he's wonderful and yeah. hopefully you'll be able to hear that yeah. we'll let you know when it's yeah it's coming out but um speaking of latin music your parents had you said for where i read for a brief time they had a latin club yes uh how did how did that happen i mean was it just because they loved latin music or?
1: no no it was just you know my father was was kind of a, a very experimental guy <laughs> and and they they'd sort of start various different businesses and this this opportunity came up it was a place on the west side of new york latin uh bar and club um and they you know it was just i was thrilled because i would hang out and the basement is where uh tito stored all his congas and all his instruments and so i would get to hang with him once in a while and and uh you know but that that was kind of the atmosphere i grew up in were very liberal and very much you know in terms of my sister and I, we could do
0: no wrong, even though I was such a
1: fuck up, frankly. Um,
0: well, I wouldn't say. That, <laughs> but but I, I, so I can understand your really your excitement about Santana, though, when you heard them.
1: Oh yeah, it blew my mind completely. Blew my mind completely. It was just the perfect synthesis of rock and that. And you know, New York. I was I was I'd grown up listening to a guy named Symphony sit on the radio i don't know if you know who that was but
0: no i don't
1: he was he played jazz and latin and he was famous throughout that jazz and latin community he used to put out the word at night you know something like yeah i'm getting kind of tired if anybody wants to stop by it and perk me up that would be great <laughs> <He eventually> got, <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
0: wow uh, <laughs> that's great yeah <laughs> very clever yeah, very subtle <laughs> um but, but salsa yeah. was,
1: was, you know, very much a part of the New York music scene. And, and uh, so it was in my blood it, and it from an early time as well. So Carlos, I mean, Santana just was, it was like a dream. And, and the way we booked the accent, that was my, my, kind of one of my favorite things was doing the booking. And the way that, that a lot of them came, that the accent hadn't been seen yet, uh or hadn't been heard from yet Joe Cocker was one uh Danny Cordell who had produced Joe's first album was a friend of Artie's and sent Artie a tape and Artie sent it to me and said what do you think and I thought it was a black blues singer and I thought it was great <laughs> turns out it was this crazy right um <laughs> another big bargain 1500 bucks and and Crosby, Sills, Nash and Young. I was in Hector Morales's office at William Morris, and David Geffen came in with the test pressing. Mm. Said you guys got to hear this, and he put it on. We were completely blown away. I made the deal with him on the spot for I think ten thousand dollars. Wow! And 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 uh, you know, for a new act, it was absurd. But they were—I knew they were just gigantic, and and um, you know, I, I was. A big fan of the buffalo springfield and, and the birds and so this was just the next step for them which was fantastic so things like that were always very exciting
0: so when word started getting around about this festival with the music community were like people like pounding down your yeah. door trying to get on stage once we i mean
1: as you said who was i this kid to be booking you know these superstars and what i figured out early on was to book three big acts pay them what they asked and get credibility. And that's what I did. I think it was the airplane, can and, and and credence. Shrewd
0: and smart. Yeah.
1: And then you know, it became real uh-huh. to everybody. You know, everything sort of, a lot of things happened right. Um, we had a PR firm called Wartok, and they got Woodstock completely and they set up this, this kind of connection with all the college and underground press around the country to bring everybody into the the planning of it, in in essence, to be part of this thing as it grew,
0: and it worked amazingly well. It was like as good or not better than the Obama campaign <laughs> <laughs> was when, when they, you know, when they took over social media because yeah. they were like the first ones to really do that yeah, yeah. and use it effectively. Yeah. Um, and I remember that whole thing about you know all the local free news, weekly newspapers and all that that were going around, yeah. and uh, and how there would be these little ads or blurbs yeah. about the event yeah. and you know the word of mouth was, of mouth was quite it was, incredible it
1: was almost like being on you know sort of social media today it traveled so fast I mean there was a, a club called The Scene in New York and it was owned by Steve Paul who was, I don't know if you know who Steve was but he, he managed Johnny Winter and a few other acts and Right. And
0: it was a, oh my God, Johnny Winter—that's a name I haven't heard in ages. Yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I went down to the club one night, and it was the club. It was it was where everybody went to jam. Hendrix and everybody, it was anybody, who was in town went, went to uh, went to jam. And Shana was on the bill. I didn't go there to see Shana but they were one of the acts that was playing that night. And, and after the set, it just struck me that this is a great little tip of the hat to rock and roll right so i went backstage and i offered them the gig which they flipped that over and accepted and two days later i heard from somebody in l.a i heard you book nah. up. <laughs> it was just the word of mouth was was definitely you know alive and well
0: right when you were planning all this for the three days you got this amazing variety of musicians yeah there were so many different types of music from Shauna Na to Joan Baez. I mean, you you know, yeah. they're like yeah. almost polar opposites. So was yeah. that part of your plan or did it just kind of happen naturally? Did it just unfold that way? No,
1: that was part of the plan. Um, I mean, they were all connected to the counterculture and and all very involved in the same things that we were all involved in. You know, it wasn't like the rock bands weren't involved in the the efforts to end the war. It wasn't like the the folk acts weren't involved equally with Um, So it was really about what was part of the counterculture. Woodstock was, you know, I called it a a music and art fair, because it was really something that was hopefully going to celebrate all of the arts in the counterculture, Um, painters and sculptors. And and we had a good deal of that. When we had to move, we lost some of it. But we had a good deal of that anyway. Um, So it was really a celebration of all the arts. And mm-hmm. everything to do with the counterculture. And we had this thing called Movement City, which is where we let all the political groups set up their information booths and hand out their their uh, their whatever their you know, their information was. And interesting thing was that after the first day they had all abandoned their post because here it was. They <laughs> didn't have to convince anybody it was happening in front of them. Um, right. But but um I guess I you know, musically it was really I was just Like everybody else who was part of the counterculture, those were the bands that we loved, and those were the bands that we felt needed to be there. And they felt needed to be there. With the the exception of The Who. Yeah. And John Morris um, spent, I think, until 6 o'clock in the morning trying to convince them to play Woodstock. And finally Pete gave up at six o'clock in the morning and said, "Okay, I'll play. They wanted to get back home. They, they were not why part, didn't they want they were, because they were at the end of a long tour. The counterculture and the hippies were not part of their world. You know they were from a different culture and, and were just about rock and roll and not about any of this stuff. So to them it was just you know we've got to stay another two weeks to play this gig. So, but that was the only act I think that wasn't really part of what was going on in our counterculture.
0: Was there anyone you ever really wanted to be there that wasn't there? Yeah.
1: Um, John Lennon. Uh-huh. The Beatles weren't touring yeah. then. And, and uh, we were trying to get John to come in. And, and Nixon wouldn't allow him in the country because of his anti-war stance. And,
0: oh, God, yeah. I forgot about
1: yeah. that. Yeah. And I got a letter from Apple, actually. The day that we lost our sight in Nautil, which was a monthly mm. festival, I got a letter from uh, Apple. They've been dealing with this situation with John, and they said they couldn't get him in, but um, they would love to send the Plastic Ono Band and James Taylor and and um, uh, Billy Preston. Would have been great to have all three of those things. Yeah, and I never saw the letter until I wrote my book forty years later.
0: <laughs> uh, of course, you could have. If it was today, you could have streamed John Lennon <laughs> yeah. if he was alive, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. And and I wanted to end the festival with. Uh, Roy Rogers singing Happy Trails. Wow, that was my dream. We had we had all grown up with on Saturday mornings watching Roy Rogers on TV, and, and the end of the show would always be Happy Trails. And you know, I thought, you know, what a perfect way to end with Roy. But
0: then you would have had to start with its Howdy Doody time or something.
1: No, no, this would have
0: been. You know, would have, <laughs> no, I'm people, joking. People but people would have gotten it. And, and, yeah, no, they would have gotten it. But his manager didn't. <laughs> huh so so but they but you did end with probably one of the most amazing performances ever absolutely. which was Jimi hendrix absolutely, absolutely. uh the star spangled banner my god it was quite incredible absolutely. things work out for the best um you know speaking of uh i just want to jump over to the to the film for a minute because yes i, I john morris was talking about how you guys had to, you know, as the bands were going up to play, you were trying to get them to sign the release forms for the movie because everything was so last minute that was with Artie's, the movie. That
1: was Artie's job. Artie's job was to walk them from backstage, from the performance area, to the stage and get them to sign this little document that said they agreed to be filmed. And a few of them got signed, most of them afterwards.
0: I was thinking about that, especially when you were talking about The Who. You know, just trying to convince them to come and play, let alone then say, well, we want you to play, plus, you know, we're doing this movie, so. And,
1: you know, they, they I guess their tour manager, they wanted to get paid what uh, their second half, because in those days you paid 50% up front, 50% of the gig. And because there was no gate, there was no money, and so I was in a position where I had to convince them that they would get paid on Monday they get to take a check and the check would be good on monday and and uh they were like well we're not playing if if uh, we don't get oh my god and i said okay you know i'll go make the announcement if that's what you what your decision is and they said what announcement and i said well I'll just go let p- people know that you guys are not going to play because you know i can't pay you uh oh no
0: no <laughs> 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 that's where that psychology studying came in yeah <laughs> and joel was able to get the bank
1: owner to go on a saturday and open the bank and get a cashier's
0: check. now joel and john weren't absolutely sold on the idea at first were they of doing the um,
1: they were they weren't you know we had two projects that we presented one was a, a oh, recording the, yeah. studio in woodstock and, and the other was the festival and, and uh they didn't really get the idea of a, a remote recording studio, you know, when you'd want to be in the city where all the commercial workers and all that. And it was a time when, you know, the, the, those great studios in, in California and, you know, and in, 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 uh, remote studios in, in various places. And Woodstock seemed like the ideal place for it to me. So,
0: and Bob Dylan was out there already, wasn't he? Yeah, the,
1: the band was here. Dylan was here. Butterfield was here. A lot of people had, had, had been living here. And everybody else was visiting, and, and you know they were not people who wanted to go into the city necessarily to record their albums to be, you know, here. So anyway, uh, they finally agreed to do both, and then the studio kind of got eaten up by the festival.
0: So uh, back to the kind of people that went to Woodstock. I mean, we when we were younger, I don't have a memory of us being all that demanding as a generation we wanted to end the war and things like that you could call that demanding but i'm talking about life in general um i i'm i keep going back to what young people are like today i mean i don't know how old you have two daughters i guess right three daughters and two sons oh wow so you're living the millennial life in a lot of ways then too probably right Yes. So, what, what is your take on millennials as compared to our, what our generation was like when we were younger?
1: Um, well, when you say our generation, if you're talking about the counterculture, it's, it's, it's very different. You know, they're, they're not part of a movement, per se. You know, they're just living their lives, and, and, but, they, but they do have concerns. You know, they, global warming is a big threat to their future. As it is to all of ours, and they they're getting that, and they're 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 responding to that, and and the social issues like Black Lives Matter, they're responding to that as well. And I think that that um, I think I think that that they're kind of our hope. Frankly, I think that you know, especially with race relations, I mean, the older generations are you know emotionally kind of some, as is apparent from from the Trump victory, are still tied to that. Um, that way of thinking they're going to die off and and you know my kids don't see any race difference with anybody and and i think that's pretty much true of most of them most
0: do they feel a sense of responsibility towards the future because of you well
1: i don't know about because of me but i think they do
0: do they know what you've been to a, a to a whole cultural movement
1: um i think it's a model you know that that they look at and, and think about as kind of a time capsule <laughs> piece. You know, uh, but I think they also realize that there is power there. That people have the power, um, and whether whether it's something they consciously kind of mine on a daily basis, or just something that they is part of their reality. I think that that's that that gives them some some strength.
0: Yeah, I I just you know I don't have kids, so um I, I I have friends who have kids, so I'm always kind of observing and not living it, yeah. you, you know. Uh, but I I see so much uh, more of the focus, like when I when I watch music videos or anything like that, the focus seems to be so much more about the individual as yeah than the yeah, group. Absolutely and and that worries me that because you have to have community in order to make change i think even though you're you're living proof that one person can move mountains you know or go to the mountains (laughs) uh and and make and make really positive change so have you felt you've had to guide your children have you seen them go off course and you have to guide them or do you let them just go the road they're going and and figure it out for themselves? uh, I think,
1: you know, I think, first of all, you know, they are a product of my wife and myself and, you know, the atmosphere that they've been brought up in, which is liberal. uh, But I think that they also have their own sensibility about those things and and their own understanding of, of what's right and what's wrong.
0: Which is obviously going to be somewhat different from you, but still based on that, right? Yeah. Yeah, so um, I just wanted to ask you um, about Woodstock 50 and why you think it didn't work. Do you think it was because everything has become about money? Is that a correct assumption? You know, when you were trying to do Woodstock, the original '69 Woodstock, it it was because they were saying like, we don't want to have all these hippies out here. So you had to keep moving. You kept losing places, and
1: we only lost one place, and that was Wallkill. Um, We had been there for three months, and as it's a funny story, because John and Joel went up and made the deal with town council, the town
0: fathers at Wallkill.
1: You know, they looked like businessmen
0: <laughs> yeah they were they were in the in the suits and all yeah, that, yeah. And,
1: you know in short hair and that's who they were and and you know they talked about you know jazz and folk music on the on the weekend afternoons and and then once we they had agreed and we started bringing our crews up they looked like me not like john and joel <laughs> and so it kind of started to freak everybody out because you know there was a huge generation gap in the 60s you know, there was no communication between our parents' generation and ours basically in most people's right. lives so that generates a lot of fear and there was a lot of fear and, and you know even at Bethel, the locals were had turned against it uh, out of fear in the month that we were there uh, until it happened, until they met the kids until they were like suddenly you know, these were the kids like any other kids these
0: were kids like their kids real people, real yeah. people
1: and nice people and they just fell in love with everybody, and they started, you know, making sandwiches and trying to help people do whatever, pulling cars out of ditches. I mean, that was that was really, to me, a very telling and very significant part of, of what happened.
0: So, but the fiftieth anniversary, what do you think? it? So the fiftieth, I,
1: I, I, you know, I, I put that up to having the wrong partner. Um, they didn't understand what went into it. What, what the time urgencies were at the end of the day they were trying to really what they would have loved is put the tickets on sale and then we'll book the acts that kind of thing so they didn't have uh, you know exposure uh, I think that was the biggest problem they were not supposed to have any say in it and a week before we signed our contracts which were late um, they came up with this thing about having to have uh, co-production responsibility um, because of some international monetary transaction regulation Uh, and that that you know the red lights went off but I was it was too late to change and and, uh, I think that's what killed
0: it right so it being the 50th anniversary that must have been like a bitter pill to swallow
1: it was it was you know it was I mean the inspiration for it was global warming and it was really about engaging people in, in that issue and uh, I think along the way we did some of that anyway, so it wasn't a total, you know, loss in that sense
0: So do you think you're like you're thinking now, is it I'm done with this kind of thing with doing these music uh, things or are you still, is your mind still churning and going, I don't know, maybe I'll do another one <laughs> <laughs> You know, I've learned never to say never
1: but, right. but you know, and we're working on a, a kind of a get out the vote event for October
0: They are in 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 Woodstock or Bethel no in the Northeast oh okay uh, and uh you know which
1: will obviously have to be you know mostly online right because of COVID, right you know uh, but it but it's I think a critical election and I think that one thing that I would like to tell anybody who is listening is make sure you get out there and vote uh it's just Critical to the survival of our
0: planet. Well, we'll definitely promote your event one, once you have it in place. Uh, one other thing, you, you've gotten involved in. Well, it's not brand new, but you've been getting involved in the cannabis business. Yeah. How, how is that going, and what's what? Where are things now? So
1: when you say have been getting involved in it
0: <laughs> well I, you know what i've been reading about like it, it, there was uh first i guess you were you were selling some paraphernalia through the woodstock website
1: first i was selling paraphernalia in coconut grove florida
0: right <laughs> when i was 21 <laughs> and here we are again right yeah
1: so for me it's kind of full circle <laughs> right it's something yeah. that i've always believed in and i always believe it should be legalized um you know we're in stores in colorado uh, and hopefully over the next couple of years we'll be spreading around the country.
0: Hopefully California, because uh, we're California here and very sure. large. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Yes, that's right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and legal.
1: <laughs> so I yeah, guess it has exactly
0: and yeah. but you have the legal right now to use the Woodstock name as part of the line, correct? The Woodstock Cannabis Company. Yeah. So that that's pretty cool. Well uh I I hope that goes along further and is successful (laughs) you know i'm sure you do uh and we once that does we would love to talk to you more about what's happening and and let people know about uh the company and where they can get it great so michael in closing is there anything that uh is there one single memory about woodstock 69 that never ever leaves you yeah, I mean
1: it's the one that I've talked about a bunch of times which is when Richie Heavings hit the stage and our sound system worked. That's yeah, in, indelibly, you know, embossed on my <laughs> my brain.
0: And I mean that's when I knew that we were going to be okay. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And that is quite a performance and I know John Morris told us about the trying to get him out there to do one more song and one more song one more song and yeah, having to fly <laughs> him there from the hotel anyway because nobody could get there so that it it just seems like you know the angels were with you through this yes, uh absolutely. through this whole absolutely. thing and and um with your sweet cherubic face from back then too you were one of them obviously who was working <laughs> on their behalf so Anyway, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Pleasure. And we look forward to talking to you again in the future. Great. All right, you take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. What was amazing to me about my conversation with Michael Lang was that it it took me back to when I was 15 years old and I was stuck on the New York State Thruway trying to get to Woodstock, and then a year later seeing the movie and how important that sense of community was to me that was created by Michael. He's one of my personal heroes. And here I am all these years later talking with him. So thank you, Michael. As always, we would love to hear what you think about this or any other subject affecting our generation. Send us your audio recording and we'll try to work it into a future podcast episode. Go to our website, www.talkingboutourgeneration.com, and go to the share page for instructions on how to be a part of the conversation. Before we close, I want to give a shout-out to Rob Wilson, our director, who has worked tirelessly to make this podcast something incredibly special and, most importantly, interesting to listen to. Thank you, Rob. I also want to thank my very talented old friend, Bill Aldridge, for giving us our theme music. In honor of Michael's original dream to end Woodstock with Roy Rogers singing Happy Trails, We wanted to end this episode with that epic song of our youth.
2: Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds if we're together? Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather and betray till we be meet. It's the way you ride that trail that counts. Here's a happy one for you. Happy trail. About the clouds, if we're together, just sing a song and bring the sunny weather and these rails to.
0: brings back some happy memories. Thanks to Roy Dusty Rogers Jr. for his support. We hope to be talking to him down the road. Those days seem so far away, so innocent compared to what we are all going through right now. The pandemic is still with us. Please wear a mask, keep using antibacterial gel, and remember to social distance. And of course, the election is just five weeks away. Please, make sure you have a safe, secure way not only to vote, but to make sure your vote counts. We'll post some election information on our website. Stay safe, everybody. This is Julian G. Simmons. Thanks for listening. This podcast includes copyrighted material which has not always been specifically authorized by the copyright owner. This content
1: is used only where it is the specific subject of commentary by us and our guests, as part of our effort to advance understanding of issues of social and historical significance. We believe that this constitutes a fair use of the material in accordance with the Fair Use Section of U.S. Copyright Law, Section 107, which reads, The Fair Use of a Copyrighted Work. For purposes such as criticism, comment, News reporting, teaching, scholarship, or research is not an infringement of copyright. Further information on this claim of fair use may be found on our website at talkingaboutourgeneration.com.